Good morning. Uh, Katie and I were at a um, retreat earlier this week of, of pastors in, in Southern California in the PCA and, and their spouses. And um, uh, as pastors are probably, is usually the case when they get together, a lot of us like to talk shop and talk about ministry and church life and how things are going. And uh, as I was reflecting on that with some of uh, my friends and brothers, it, I was thinking about you all and thinking about Trinity and life here at Trinity and the community here at Trinity. And I just want to say that we are so thankful to be a part of this church. And you should know I hear stories from around the country and different denominations of, of leadership, church leadership and community life in different churches. And you guys really, you guys really are blessed here. Uh, we were as elders getting together this week, and uh, it just occurred to me afresh um, that the leaders of this church really love you, and really they pray for you, they love you, they're concerned with your well-being and your spiritual flourishing. And so I just want to say that that's a gift that not all churches have, um, and it's one that God has given to you. So continue to pray for your leaders here. Uh, they're doing a fin fantastic job. I don't know why they brought me on board, but um, I'm trying not to mess it up. Um, we're in a series for the season of Lent that we're calling Questions God Asks Us. Um, Christianity, if, you've, if you're familiar with Christianity, if, if you've studied Christianity, you know that it provokes questions. Uh, things like, how can a good God allow suffering in the world? Is it reasonable to believe in the truth claims of Christianity? Uh, things like, isn't Christianity's track record sort of sullied and stained by things like slavery and abuse and violence. Isn't that pretty bad? Doesn't that discredit Christianity? And those are good questions, and we want Trinity to be a place where those questions are encouraged and valued and taken seriously. Um, but God has questions, too. If you read through the Old and New Testament, you, you come to realize that God has questions. Throughout the Bible, there are numerous accounts of God coming to human beings uh, and engaging them with questions, not because he needed the answers or doesn't know the answers, uh, but actually to give people, to give people like you and me the opportunity to grow, um, to change, and to experience him in new and profound ways. And this morning, we're in Genesis 16. It's the account of Abram and Sarai and their maidservant, um, their slave, Hagar, you probably, uh, if you know the Old Testament, you're, you're more familiar with uh, the names Abraham and Sarah. Uh, their names actually get changed in Genesis 17 in the next chapter. And so just to prevent confusion, I'm just going to be referring to them as Abraham and Sarah in this passage. Um, so don't get confused. If you, uh, just to, we're dropping right in the middle of a story here in Genesis 16. So especially if you're not familiar with the storyline of the Bible, the storyline of Genesis, I'm going to give us a little orientation that I, I hope will be useful to you. So Genesis is the first book of 66 books that comprise the Old and New Testament. It's a book of origins. It sets the stage. It's, it's, about, it's about the primeval history it's the inciting action that gets the plot and the story of the Bible moving. So in Genesis, you have a, a God who, who creates the world. Uh, he creates not out of need or loneliness, but out of the overflow of 
his Trinitarian love. Uh, and he, he makes a perfect world. Uh, he makes a world to enjoy. Uh, and he creates humanity. He creates people like you and me. He positions them as princes and princesses over his creation to steward life, uh, to care for the world. But as we saw, and if you were here last week, and if you know the story in Genesis 3, not too long after the story begins, um, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, they fail at the task of stewardship. Um, They fail at God's command to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they, they themselves and all creation with them are subjugated to death and decay and to sin and shame. Um, And Adam and Eve are cast out of God's presence in the garden, but not before God gives them a promise that one day, through one of their descendants, he's going to send a rescuer. He's going to send someone to come and crush the head of evil and destroy death forever. So the human race begins to multiply. In Genesis 4, uh, Adam and Eve have their first two children, Cain and Abel. And if you know the story of Cain and Abel, you know it doesn't turn out well. Cain, the older brother, murders his younger brother, Abel. Uh, And it just keeps getting worse. By Genesis 8, there's so much violence and injustice uh, and pride in the human race that God is literally heartbroken that he ever made man, that he ever made humanity. So he sends a flood to wipe out all life on earth, but he preserves one, one family, Noah and his family, and two of every living creature on the earth. Um, And he preserves them. He saves them. He saves them from this deluge. Um, But it's not too long after God wipes the slate clean that humanity begins to make a mess of everything again. So what God does is he reaches down and he reaches out to an old childless pagan couple in the ancient Near East named Abraham and Sarah. And he makes them a promise, uh, and it's on the, on the face of it, an absurd promise. He makes a promise that they will have in their old age their first baby boy, and that through that boy, things will be put back to rights. Uh, the nations, the whole world will begin to experience blessing and healing, and God's good purposes for the world will be fulfilled. Now, that's, that's sort of just to get us up to speed. Genesis 16 opens up with, a, with a, a staggering, tragic verse, Genesis 16.1. It's been 10 years since God made the promise to Abraham and Sarah. 10 years of nomadic existence, wandering through the desert. 10 years of wondering about God's promise. 10 years of infertility. The whole world, the weight of the entire world is resting on the shoulders of Sarah. And can you even begin to to imagine what she might have felt like? That brings us to Genesis 16 and a woman in the wilderness named Hagar. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time uh, this morning. God's encounter with the slave of Sarah, with Hagar in the wilderness, in the desert. As I was um, preparing for this sermon and studying, um, I was reminded again how often it is that God meets people in the wilderness, how often he meets them in desert places. And Hagar is actually the first example 
of a long line of biblical characters that God meets in the wilderness. He comes to and reveals himself in profound ways. Uh, People like Moses, the entire nation of Israel, uh, the prophet Elijah, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, and even Jesus himself. Um, People who met God in the wilderness and whose lives were changed after that. They they met God in a profound way, and their identity was formed in a, in a completely new way. And that's actually, I think, what God is doing when he comes to Hagar. He comes to her with two questions. Where have you come from, and where are you going? And I think what God is asking when he comes to, when he comes to Hagar with those two questions is really, the, if I could phrase them another way, he could say, who are you, and what do you want? Who are you, and what are you searching for? And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at this story in Genesis 16 and really seek to answer those two questions through, through Hagar's experience, through her, uh, this experience of meeting God in the wilderness. So we're going to first look at the maid who became a princess, uh, second, the runaway slave and our search for freedom, and then third, the God in the wilderness. So first, the maid who became a princess. Now put yourself in Hagar's shoes for just a moment. She is presumably, uh, she's an Egyptian slave, and scholars sort of conjecture about whether, where exactly she came into the entourage of Abraham and Sarah. But she is presumably dead to her family, to her birthplace, to her history. She is literally uh, the, the, the human property of another. Uh, I know our English translations tend to kind of use a, a more polite, genteel word, maidservant. Uh, but she is human property. She is a slave. And as the story attests, uh, she has no rights over her life, over her choices, even over her own body. She has no rights. And this is not something that's, um, that you find that's sort of odd in just the Bible, Uh, This was an ancient Near Eastern practice and custom. Uh, The ancient Near East, the culture that Abraham and Sarah lived in, would have approved of all of this. It's not like they were doing something that was deemed immoral or unhealthy. It was something that their culture condoned and supported. This was normal life, to have a slave like Hagar, even to uh, have that slave become um, your concubine or your second or third wife. Think about Hagar. Put yourself in her shoes. She's an Egyptian. She's a woman. She's a slave. She's not part of the chosen line of God's plan for renewing the world. She's an outsider according to her gender. She's an outsider according to her ethnicity and her social status. She was seen in this story especially merely for her utility, as a means to an end, not an end in herself. And so can we stop for just a moment and ask what that might have been like to be Hagar, to be an outsider according to your gender, your ethnicity, your social status, to have no rights in that society, not even over your own body. Some of you may be thinking, this is just a sidebar here, some of you may be thinking, does the Bible condone that? Does the Bible support of that way of life. I mean, Abraham and Sarah, God identifies himself as the God of Abraham. Uh, Is the Bible condoning the actions of Abraham and Sarah? I think it's helpful to step back and think about two different kinds of um, passages or types of 
uh, stories or verses we read in the Bible. Uh, theologians like to talk about texts that are prescriptive and texts that are descriptive. Prescriptive texts in the Bible or prescriptive stories in the Bible or prescriptive codes in the Bible tell us something to do. Um, the Ten Commandments, which we read earlier, is a prescriptive text. It says, this is God's will for you. This is what you must do. Uh, if you want to love God and your neighbor, this is how you do it. It's a prescriptive text. But oftentimes, the Bible has descriptive texts, usually in narratives or stories, that give an account of something that happened, but doesn't necessarily, uh, through the narrator, through the voice of the narrator, give us a positive or negative evaluation of it. It's just a story. It's just, this is what happened, uh, without really assigning a negative or positive evaluation of it. Does the Bible condone slavery? I don't think so. The Bible has an entire book, uh, the book of Philemon in the New Testament, that is rooted in the idea that the gospel is antithetical to slavery. The biggest picture of redemption and salvation in the Old Testament was the book of Exodus, a book where God literally reached down and delivered a, a nation out of bondage and slavery uh, to another people. What does the Bible say about women? The Bible in both the Old and the New Testament, in both creation and redemption, affirms without question the equal value, dignity, worth of women and men, girls and boys. What about polygamy? Abraham and Sarah, they're in... Um, Abraham, uh, Sarah is Abraham's wife. Uh, what about Hagar? She comes in. Is the Bible condoning uh, polygamy, taking more than one wife? Doesn't that, uh, doesn't, isn't that abusive towards women? If you, if you read through the stories of polygamy in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a descriptive, usually they're all descriptive accounts. Every instance of polygamy in the Old Testament, wherever God's design for marriage is challenged, things end in disaster. Things end in a mess. It's interesting. In fact, the first few verses of Genesis 16 um, has overtones of Genesis 3. Uh, listen again. Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Sarah took and gave Hagar to Abraham. Those, those verbs there, listened and taking and giving, are designed to transport the reader back to the garden in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve rebel against God, where Adam listens to the voice of his wife, where Eve takes and gives Adam the fruit and plunges all of humanity and creation into shame and sin. Uh, the Bible is certainly not condoning this lifestyle. It's not condoning slavery. It's not condoning the abuse and object, objectification of women. It's not condoning polygamy. That's just the sidebar. Let's think for a moment about Hagar. Remember I asked you to put yourself in Hagar's shoes. What was the dynamic between Sarah and Hagar? What was it that led to God asking this woman in the wilderness, where have you come from? What led to her being cast out into the wilderness, to her fleeing into the wilderness? I think it's this, and I'll explain it in just in, in, as briefly as I can. Both women, both Sarah and Hagar, were trying to base their identity and worth on their status as moms. They were both trying to base their status and worth, their identity, 
in who they were as moms, not they're basing their identity in who they were as ch- as children of God. Now, to get at this, you have to understand exactly what was going on. So Sarah, she is living, Sarah and Hagar are living in a traditional culture, a culture that says you are only as good as the children that you bear, uh, that your contribution to the family and to the tribe and to the community. Um, that's where that's the, the, the world that Sarah and Hagar lived in. Um, and so you can imagine 10 years of, of infertility, of resting, of trying to rest in God's promise, and Sarah finally comes to the conclusion that I'm, I, I'm worthless. I can't do this. I need some way out uh, to fulfill God's promise. And so she looks to Hagar, her slave, and has her conceive through Abraham to bear a son. Um, Now, notice what happens, the dynamics, the relational dynamics between Sarah and Hagar. Sarah, who's the master, who is the owner of Hagar, the superior, and Hagar, the slave woman, the inferior. Uh, When when Sarah sees that, um, that Hagar is pregnant, that she's conceived, she notices that Hagar begins to look with contempt on her mistress. Uh, literally, the Hebrew is it, it, it's, it's language that's, that, um, that evokes that Sarah looked little, looked small in Hagar's eyes. The dynamics of their relationship began to change. Sarah began to uh, be deflated. She felt worthless. Uh, she felt like she couldn't offer anything to the tribe, to the community, to the family, to the family line. And Hagar began to feel superior. She began to look with contempt. She looked at, at Sarah as if she was little. You have issues of, of inferiority and superiority, all because they're basing their identity, their worth, on their status as moms. Um, see, what, what we need, what you and I need, what Hagar and Sarah needed was an identity that wasn't determined, wasn't based on their society or their culture, but instead an identity that remained constant in spite of their culture, in spite of what their hearts were telling them, in spite of what the community was telling them. And there are three typical ways, I'm borrowing here from um, uh, a pastor in New York, Tim Keller, there are three typical ways that you and I, uh, that whatever, wherever culture you find yourself in, we all tend to find our identity in one of three ways. We can either look out, we can look in, or we can look up. We can look out. This is exactly what Hagar and Sarah were doing. They were looking out, looking to their culture, looking to their traditional culture that said, if you want a sense of self, if you want an identity, if you want worth, then you need to bear kids. You need to raise a family. You need to contribute to the community. And look look at what happened to each of them. Uh, as they either achieved or didn't achieve, they were either deflated and depressed or inflated and made proud. Uh, Sarah was crushed, she was deflated, and she began to lash out. She began to abuse Hagar. In fact, the language that the, the writer used there for uh, harshly mistreating Hagar is the same word that is used in Exodus where, uh, where the narrator describes the abuse from the Egyptians to the Israelites. This was physical, verbal abuse. 
Hagar and Sarah looked out. They looked to their traditional culture and said, that's where I'm going to find my meaning and my worth and my value and my identity. And to us, that sounds absurd. Why would you do that? Uh, Why at all would you look to somebody else? Why would you look to traditional roles like bearing kids and raising a family to find your identity? We tend not to look out, but to look in. We tend to look in for our sense of self. We look for achievement. We look to success. We look to uh, love relationships. We look to education. We're all looking, no matter what you, whether you're existing in a traditional culture or a modern culture, whether you're looking out or in, you are looking for someone or something to see you, to recognize you, to notice you. And in one sense, in a traditional culture, you're asking for the culture to affirm you, to recognize you, to value you. But if you're looking to inward, if you're looking to follow your heart and follow your dreams and follow your achievements, you still want to be noticed. You still want people to see that and recognize you. But there's a third way. There's a third way, and it's the way that's charted out through, through the entire Bible. You don't look out. You don't look in. You look up. And that's exactly what Hagar discovers in the wilderness. She discovers, what does she, what does she see? What does Hagar see in the wilderness? She sees a God who sees her. That's exactly what she calls this, um, this mysterious messenger, this angel of the Lord that she meets in the wilderness. She calls him the God who sees because she's found. Hagar no longer has to discover through her community or through her sense of self who she is. She instead is found. The angel of the Lord finds her. See, the Christian gospel is radically different from both traditional religious culture and modern secular culture. Where religious traditional culture says your identity is based on your position in the tribe or your ability to raise a family or your religiosity. And modern secular culture says your status and identity is based on your performance or how many degrees you have or how accomplished you are. The gospel says it's not your past, present, or future attainments or achievements or performance that determines who you are, but the attainments of another, the attainments of Jesus Christ, the performance of a substitute. And it's that attainment that makes you more precious than the most priceless diamond. As I was doing research, I was, I was thinking about the number of times that God names a child before that child is born in the Bible. And by my count, I could be wrong, I counted six times where, uh, where God names a child before that child is born. And in almost all of the instances in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, you find that the, they're all, they all happen to be boys too, uh, that all of the times that God names a baby boy before he's born, They are all, those characters with maybe one or two exceptions, some kind of royalty. They are usually part of the chosen lineage of God's plan for redemption in the world. And I think what God is saying to Hagar in this episode where he meets her and calls her, gives her baby boy a name before he's born, is that he's saying to Hagar, I see you, I notice you. And everyone up to this point has seen you as a slave, as worthless, as just something to be used. 
but I see you as a princess. I see you as a queen. Does that grab your heart this morning that God will look at you and say, no matter who else sees you this way or that way, I see you as a princess. I see you as a prince. Imagine for a moment what that might be like to go into your week this week knowing that God sees you as a prince or princess. I recently saw um, Black Panther. It was phenomenal. I loved it. Uh, and I, as, as every time I see a movie, I have to go and read, you know, hundreds of pages of analysis of the movie because I'm obsessed. And um, I came across an interview of um, the British actress Letitia Wright, who, if you've seen the film, um, she's a young actress. She plays the princess uh, of Wakanda. And um, she, was, she was being interviewed, and she said something extraordinary that I thought was... Thought, was profound, profoundly moving. Uh, she was talking about the fact that recently uh, she had to take a break from acting. She sort of called off a number of roles um, and sort of took some time off. And this is what she said about that break. She said, I needed to take a break from acting because I, re I really idolized it. So I came off from it and I went on a journey to discover my relationship with God and I became a Christian. It really just gave me so much love and light within myself. I felt secure, like I didn't need validation from anyone else or getting apart. My happiness wasn't dependent on that. It was dependent on my relationship with God. You see what she's saying? Can you dream for a moment and picture yourself as Hagar? God's saying to you, you don't need validation outside of me. You don't need acceptance and worth and an identity outside of my relationship with you. I see you as a princess. I see you as a prince. Letitia Wright experienced that. She, she, she saw for the first time in becoming a Christian that she didn't need to listen to all the critics, the audiences that would see her performance. She was focused on the audience of one, that there was a God who saw her noticed her, recognized her, and loved her. Well, let me suggest, so what does that mean? We have this identity that's dependent on this relationship with a God who sees us, who finds us, who gives us worth and value and dignity in him seeing us and noticing us. Let me suggest one way that that identity that Hagar receives here in this passage is lived out in this story and can be lived out in our life uh, now in the 21st century. Let me suggest that Hagar, ironically, becomes the most free person in this entire story. Hagar, the slave, becomes the most free person in this entire story. That has to do with this runaway slave and, and her search, and our search for freedom, for liberation. Let me say, let me say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that her slavery, remember, the story is clear. She meets God in the wilderness, and God tells her to go back, to go back under the hand of Sarah, her mistress, and we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but let me suggest what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that her slavery, her literal physical slavery, was of no consequence. I'm also not saying that passages like this have not been abused in the Christian tradition. Oftentimes, in the history of Christianity, people have taken passages like this and said, see, 
The Bible condones slavery. It doesn't. It doesn't. Slaves, uh, slaves. The, God's intention for the world is that people would be free, that they would be liberated. This story is also not prescriptive. It's not prescriptive to humanity, to you and me. It's a message to Hagar. It was God's particular, unique design for Hagar's life and well-being and not yours. So this is not a model for how people in abusive or oppressive situations should respond. It's not. And in fact, if you are here this morning and you find yourself in an abusive, verbal, emotional, physical, abusive situation, you need to flee. You need to get help. You need to find help. You need to talk to a pastor. You need to talk to one of us, one of the elders. You need to report it to the authorities. Uh, You need to flee that environment. This was God's message to Hagar. With that caveat, let let me continue. Hagar, the runaway slave, actually finds out that she is the most free person in this entire story. How can that be? Well, see, our idea of freedom, let me, just let me explore our idea of freedom for a moment. We, we think of freedom as having unlimited choices. And in fact, the more choices that we have, the happier that we are. We are suspicious of any kind of limitation, any kind of authority, any kind of leadership structure. We, are, we view ourselves as freedom being the right to determine how we will think how we will act, how we will behave. We see freedom as the complete absence of any limitations on our life, any constraints on us. So how can you say Hagar was the most free person in the passage? She was literally a slave. But think about that modern notion of freedom, the idea that freedom is the absence of constraints, the absence of any limitations. The more choices that we have, the happier that we are. Um, Think about it. It's unworkable. It's absolutely impossible. Uh, I was thinking about this as a, uh, this week as a father. If I want to experience, if I want to experience the joy and the freedom of being a dad, I need to have kids. I can't, I can't and I, that requires that I give up some of my freedom, some of my liberation. It requires that I, that I give up some of that independence in order to experience the freedom and joy of watching my kids grow up. Uh, and have fun and enjoy the world. Um, freedom isn't the absence of constraints. That's unworkable. Uh, it's choosing the right constraints. It's choosing the right wi- the right freedoms to limit. If I want to enjoy and experience a love relationship that goes um, for the rest of my life, then I need to sacrifice some of my freedom, some of my independence and commit myself to my wife, to my spouse. That limits my freedom, but it allows for the freedom of love and relationship and the uh, enjoyment of one another in marriage. See, Hagar, at first, she wasn't respecting the limits of her life and her design. If she wandered into the desert, fled into the wilderness seeking her freedom, if she chose to live any way that she wanted to, she would die quickly and alone. A runaway slave, an Egyptian woman who's pregnant in the wilderness, she would die alone. Or she would be brought into a captivity that was even worse. What Hagar discovers in the wilderness is that actually this experience with God, a, a relationship with God, the creator of the world, is the, 
is the most freeing and most constraining thing in reality. It's the most freeing and most constraining thing. She discovers a relationship here, though, that doesn't exploit or manipulate or abuse or oppress her, but instead meets her, adjusts for her, names her, like any good love relationship does. Think about God's meeting with Hagar. It's an accessible meeting. Elsewhere in the Bible, when God meets someone, when he uh, meets them face to face, there's always usually trauma and dread and great fear. But Hagar experiences none of this. It's as if this angel of the Lord who appears before her is um, someone in kind of a, a human, normal, accessible form. God's accessible to her. God speaks to her by name. Did you notice that? Did you catch that? That the, the very first thing that the angel of the Lord, this messenger from God says to Hagar, is he calls her by name. Notice that Abraham and Sarah never refer to her by name in the passage. They never refer to her by her name. God gives her a name. He also gives her a question. Isn't that profound that God's first thing is not a command? He's not dictating her to her what she um, must do or must not do. Instead, he invites her into a conversation. Maybe the first one that she's ever had. God comes and invites her into a conversation by asking her a question, which means that God's posture is one first of listening. God doesn't come barking the orders at her. Instead, God listens. He starts with listening. Let me ask you a question. I want you to tell your story. And God is the only character in this story who values Hagar as an end in herself, not because of any utility that she can provide to God. She can do nothing for God. God loves her as an end in herself. See, we're all mastered by something or someone. We're all controlled by something or someone, whether it's a significant uh, other, whether it's a relationship, uh, whether it's a, a, a job, whether it's the desires of our own heart, we're following after them, controlled by them, we're all looking for a master who will give us freedom, who will liberate us, who will empower us and honor us and adore us. The question is, are we serving the master who will actually empower and adore and free us or the ones that will exploit and abuse us? Um, we're all... We're all searching for something. We're all following something. Hagar discovers that, and she finds in the wilderness a master, the master, who will forgive her if she fails, who will adore her even when she doesn't feel beautiful, who will love her endlessly. What about you? Is the way of life that you submitted to the way of life that you're following, the thing that you're after, if you fail, will it forgive you? The position at work that you're striving for, that you're sweating for, if you blow it, will it forgive you? Will it be sympathetic? What about that significant other that you're desperately trying to impress and keep interested? What is it? We're all serving a master. We're all serving someone or something. And Hagar learns that in serving and following and submitting herself to this God, this God in the wilderness, 
she experiences for the first time a liberation and freedom and happiness that she never knew. If Hagar had stayed in the wilderness, she would have died. And if she didn't die, listen, if she had not died and somehow achieved her freedom, she would have been forever haunted by this past shame. The shame of this abusive and oppressive relationship. She would have had a son that, of all, that would have always, every time she looked at her son, she would have been reminded of her past, of her shame, of, who, of where she came from. That she came from nothing and she was nothing. Her past would have dominated both her present and her future. And that would have exploited her and been the voice that was constantly in her head and in her ears until the day that she died. But instead she found that the way to happiness, the way to freedom, the way to liberation was actually through profound difficulty. And here I think God is just giving us a picture. It's an Old Testament glimpse that the way up, the way into happiness is the way down. It's the way through humiliation. It's the truth that, that is written all over the New Testament that the cross comes before the crown. The, the way of suffering comes before uh, a, a glory. Lent, Good Friday, must be, come before Easter. How can you know? Let me close with this. How can you know that Hagar, that in returning to the God of Abraham, how, how do you think she could know that the God of Abraham was not going to exploit and abuse and oppress and constrain her in the same way that Abraham and Sarah did. How could she know? Well, let's third look at the God in the wilderness. Uh, the God in the wilderness. How did she know? How could she know? How can you know that this God, the God of Christianity, will not exploit you and abuse you and oppress you, but will actually bring you into happiness and liberation and joy? First, we have to know who this is. Who is it that meets? I've been, t I've been saying that God has met her, but what, what Genesis 16 is, says it's the angel of the Lord. Notice it doesn't say an angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord. And everywhere in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord meets with and, and, and comes face to face with a person, uh, theologians have almost unanimously agreed that this is in, in, in some way a, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus before he came onto the scene 2,000 years ago in flesh and blood, that this was somehow a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. This was Jesus. Notice what this angel of the Lord says. Uh, he says that I will make you great. I will give, I will bless you. I will do these things for you. That's God talk. That's something only God would say. Notice also that God names Ishmael. Throughout the Bible, God has this incredible power to name people, to give them an identity that says, uh, here's who you are. Here's who, where your life is going. And Ishmael, what it means is that God listens to affliction and humiliation. Isn't that profound? That God in Hagar's experience, didn't listen to Hagar's cries, didn't listen to Hagar's prayers. He listened to her affliction. If you're in a moment or period or season of suffering, God hears that. He listens to that. 
what else does Hagar discover? She discovers what we read about through the rest of the Bible, what we find is untrue of everyone in the rest of the Bible, that Hagar names God. Hagar is the only person in the entire Old Testament to give God a name. How profound is that? That an Egyptian slave woman is the only person in the entire Old Testament to give God a name. She calls him El Roy, the God who sees. That's what Hagar discovered in the wilderness, that she found a God that she could name, a God who listened to her, listened to her affliction and her humiliation, a God that promised her a destiny and a future and hope. What about us? What do we know that Hagar didn't? What do we know that Hagar didn't? Thousands of years later, God would come to another maidservant, a virgin named Mary, and he said that she would bear a son. And his name wouldn't be Ishmael, God listens to my affliction. His name would be Emmanuel, God with us. God was not content merely to listen to our affliction and humiliation. God chose to enter it himself in the person of Jesus. Jesus wasn't the son who was a wild donkey. He wasn't a wild ass. He was the son who was like a lamb led to the slaughter. Unlike Ishmael, whose hand was stretched out against uh, his brothers, against his neighbors, Jesus' hands were stretched out to heal and comfort everyone, and everyone's hand was against Jesus to the point that they took his hands and nailed them to the cross. He was the son who had all the glory, all the privilege, all the power in the world, and he gave it away so that you and I could be adopted into his family as his younger sister and brother. He was cast out so that you could be adopted in. Think about that for a moment. How can God command Hagar to go back to submission to Sarah? But if you see that, how can God do that? But if you see for a moment that it's Jesus here, doesn't that change the tone of this passage? The same Jesus who years later would say, give this command to his followers, love your enemies. Love those who persecute you. Love those who abuse you on the account of my name. Who are the people who are in outright hostility to you? Jesus Jesus comes to Hagar and says, submit yourself back. Go through that humiliation and that suffering. And that's the way to happiness. Jesus, by his own example, becomes, I was thinking about this this week, think about the passages towards the end of Jesus' life where he's in handcuffs, where he's in bondage, where he is captive, where he is under trial. And you read through those accounts, and there's just this little hint that even though Jesus appears to be the most captive, the most subjugated, the most oppressed, he is actually, in those accounts, the most free. He's actually giving the commands. He's dictating that whole scene. It's this Jesus who says to Hagar, you can go back. I will be with you. I listen to you. I hear you. Christianity says that God gave up his freedom so you could experience ultimate freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from shame, freedom from your past, freedom from the need for approval. Jesus was nailed to the cross until he couldn't move. How's that for giving up your freedom? Why? So that he could be the master that sets you free. The master that if you fail him, 
if you, if you run from him, he will forgive you. He will love you. He will embrace you. Christianity says that Jesus was cast out. He was exploited. He was abused and oppressed and ultimately killed. Why? Because he saw you. Did you notice Hagar's excitement? I could just, you could sense her excitement for the very first time in her life. She's seen. She's heard. She's loved. And she exclaims, you are the God who sees me. You know what Jesus says to you? I don't just see you. I died for you. I literally loved you to death. That's what Jesus says to you this morning. That, friends, is the most assuring, empowering truth in all the world, that you are so costly, that you are a prince and princess. You are so costly that the Son of God had to die for you. And at the exact same time, do you see where it takes you? How can you say, how can you say for a moment, uh, you know, my desires, uh, my achievements, my performance, my freedoms, my rights are most important. How can you put your needs and your desires first? When Jesus said, in that relationship with you, I'll adjust for you. I'll put your needs. I'll put the things that you need ahead of what I need. I'll meet your greatest need. I'll surrender my freedom for you. I'll bleed for you. See, you, when, you, when, you, when you hear that, when you believe that, when that's at the core of your being, you can't say me first. You can't say my needs and my rights are most important. See, when the gospel is the basis of your identity, you will be, like Hagar was, the most affirmed, most valued, most encouraged, most empowered person in the world, and at the exact same, exact same time, the most self-denying person in the entire world. The person who can say in your relationships, in your community, I'll adjust for you. Your needs, your rights ahead of mine. Why? Because Jesus did that for me. You will be the most affirmed person in the world, the most valued person in the world, a prince and princess and at the same time, the most self-denying person in the world. Your needs ahead of mine. You before me. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you for giving us an identity that's rooted in who you are. We don't have to look out to our culture. We don't have to look into our own hearts and our own performance and achievement. Instead, we can look up and see a God who sees us, who values us, who gives us incredible dignity and worth. You are the master whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. You are the one who has given us a law that leads us into perfect freedom. Help us to follow you in that, Jesus. We thank you that you are the God that we can meet in the wilderness, in the places where our lives are most desperate. You are the God that we can meet who can see us, who can notice us, and not just notice us, but die for us. We thank you that we can be brought into your family and accepted and embraced and valued and seen and named by you. 
we praise you and we thank you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.